0: Welcome, hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Kia ora everyone, this is Mickey, and you are listening to Wikipedia And this week on the podcast, I speak to physiologist Professor Karen Esser all about circadian biology and the importance of it for our overall health. Professor Essert talks to me about what we know with regards to the inputs or what impacts our circadian rhythm and what even is a circadian rhythm and how important regulating both our master clock, which sits sort of in our brain behind our eyes, and the peripheral clocks for our overall health outcomes. And every cell in our body or every organ and our muscle tissue, all of our physiology has these peripheral clocks. So they play quite a big role in regulating our hormones, enzymes, appetites, everything. We discuss how exercise impacts our circadian biology because as a physiologist that's where Professor Essa has spent a lot of her time researching and we also talk about the impact of the circadian rhythm on metabolizing different nutrients and what we do and don't know about the impact of our circadian rhythm on the absorption of pharmaceuticals and supplements. This is such a great conversation, and I think you're really going to love it. She's a wealth of information. So Dr. Issa is a professor of physiology and associate director of the Myology Institute at the University of Florida. So her lab has been working in the area of skeletal muscle adaptation for over 20 years. And while initially her research was focused on understanding the molecular mechanisms that underlie adult skeletal muscle adaptation to exercise, in 2002, they discovered genes that were important for circadian rhythms and that they were also at work in skeletal muscle. So since that early observation, her lab has pioneered research on the role of circadian rhythms and the circadian clock mechanism in skeletal muscle. So I'll put links to where you can find Dr. Esser and her research in the show notes and just before we kick off into the podcast, I'd like to remind you the best way for you to support Wikipedia is to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and give us a five star rating. That would be amazing because that just then increases the visibility of Wikipedia to other people out there looking for some science based health and nutrition podcasts to further inform their understanding of health which is basically what you're doing by listening to this and what i'm doing by bringing these conversations to you and of course if you wanted to you could also jump online to my website mickeywillidan.com where for my birthday weekend which is this coming weekend I'm doing a 50% off sale on all of my programs. So my Real Food Nutrition Program, my Fat Loss Program for Women, Flow, The Man Plan, my Keto Longevity, my Athlete Program, all 50% off to celebrate the fact that I am 45. And no, I can't believe it. That's over at mickeywillardin.com. But for now, please enjoy the conversation that I have with Professor Karen Esser. Professor Karen Essa, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me this morning about circadian rhythm. Um, I'm a you know I'm a geek when it comes to things related to exercise, health, and how just sort of other inputs impact on all of that uh, area, I suppose, and our physiology. Can I get us to kick off with you just giving us a really good 101 on circadian rhythm. Because I feel like it's a it's it's more complex than what people think and just having a good understanding of that um before we sort of get into your research and, and things like that.
1: Okay, I'll I'll give it a shot. Um because you're right, it, it can be more complicated, but I I hopefully we can come across clearly on this so I, th- I think most everybody has a general sense of what circadian rhythms are, meaning that, that that they so we so we define them as 24-hour oscillations, and historically it's been behavior, so sort of sleep rest, you know, your 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 daily, what time do you get up in the morning, what time do you go to bed, what time, you know, those kinds of things. That these are repeating behaviors that we have, but but what makes them um, actually just uh defined as circadian is that these behaviors will happen without any change in our environment now this mm. this is um most easily seen when we look at things like plants uh so if you've ever noticed plants that their leaves will sort of open in the daytime or the light and then they will sort of close down in the dark The very first known circadian experiment was a monk that took some of these plants and just stuck them into a constant light condition environment. And the leaves still opened at the time you'd expect them and then closed at the time you would expect. So this change in leaf positioning had nothing to do with light and dark, but actually was coming from information within the plant. And so hmm. that we, we th- that concept is is really how we define circadian rhythms. It's that we most associate circadian rhythms with light and dark. Um, but the reality is these behaviors um, happen independent of light and dark. So there was a hmm. study done with humans where they went and lived in a cave where the temperature was constant, they didn't have access to light and you know they just track their physiology and their behaviors and it's you know for humans it was slightly over 24 hours we can see this in rodents we can see this in like i said plants we can see this in insects and bacteria i mean it's it's the concept of circadian rhythm spans the spans planet earth and life forms so so it's just really a fundamental thing now, the, the, the biggest move in terms, of, um, uh, in, in terms of directing my own research career and, 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 it's, and the role of circadian rhythms then in human health came when there was a discovery of how these rhythms are regulated, that there is a yeah. gene mechanism, a genetic mechanism that exists in all of our cells that acts like a timer, and that timer yeah. runs for 24 hours, and so that discovery was in the '80s, um, and actually ended up winning the Nobel Prize in Physiology in 2017. Um, mm-hmm. But but so so that that you know these these circadian patterns are again they're they're a, they're a, a driven at the level of every single cell in your body, and 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 can be expressed based on your whole behavior, um, and can be linked to a set of genes. That yeah. basically function like a a timekeeping mechanism.
0: Yeah. So, um, Karen, so we have the the master clock. But there are also peripheral clocks as mm-hmm. well. How
1: do they sort of interact? So, so the, the, the so the the terminology master clock is changing. So, for various reasons, ah. the word master is probably not one of the ones that we, we like to embrace these days. But the other the other point being, so, that, so classically, the 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 hypothalamus there was a region in the hypothalamus in the brain. That was considered the the master, and and that so that this was a clock mechanism in your brain, and it, it and and the and the model was that it told all the other clocks in the rest of your body sort of what to do. The reality yeah. is this this model no longer holds true, and so so it's so what we talk about now is that clock in the brain is more like the conductor of an orchestra. Yeah. And so, all the clocks in your body are members of the orchestra, and if they want to go off and do something, <laughs> they can, um, and they yeah. will, and they do. Um, the goal of that central clock is really to try to hold everybody together because we are all healthier and function better if our clocks are all basically on the same time zone or in the same, same aligned in the same way. And so, the so the so the way I look at it personally, from my own research perspective, is that this central clock in the brain is really critically important for timing of things like sleep-wake, feeding behaviors, and then the information that comes from these things like what time we're active, what time we're eating, and this kind of thing, that information then helps to set the, the phases of the clocks in the periphery. So, so the central clock is very important, um, mm-hmm. but it is not a dominant and 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 there's it's not a a dominant controlling clock, and and there is also some growing evidence that some of the things from the periphery can actually talk back to the brain, and so I think oh. it's a really ex- I mean it's it's a wonderful challenging concept, uh, but we're still uh, still a lot to be learned.
0: Yeah. So, um, Professor Karen, is it? So all of our genes, our hormones, our temperature, like everything is governed by these clocks, the mm-hmm. conductor and then the sort of the the peripheral clocks, is that mm-hmm. right?
1: Yeah, so so it's I mean I think the way I, the way i think about it is yeah so it's things like core temperature things like heart rate yeah. blood pressure so your autonomic things that are related from a physiological sense your autonomic nervous system but then even at the level of cells so so you know the substrate metabolism these all these things all exhibit time of day variances that are that are downstream of this clock mechanism and this can occur either at the level of the cell or sort of again as 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 the autonomic nervous system, let's say talks to other tissues, so i mean it, it's it's it is complicated i don't want what I want to get across is that some of these oscillations are absolutely downstream of the clock it's not everything so so yeah. you know obviously, if you get stressed independent of what time it is or something else happens, these things can override whatever the clock is doing
0: yeah, yeah, okay, and so what what disrupts clock physiology? Then, what do we know might impact negatively on the conductor or the peripheral clocks?
1: So, the um, what we know the most about is is obviously the conductor, the SCN, and so, mm. um, obvious, you know, things like. Travel, so going mm-hmm. to different time zones where the you know so all of a sudden instead you know you're 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 used to so whatever you're you're at eight or nine o'clock in the morning in New Zealand, eight o'clock yeah, yeah. right, and so I'm at four o'clock in the afternoon, so so if we swap places you know, all of a sudden our SCNs would be receiving light at a very different time of day. And so yeah. that, I mean, so so the good part is the clock senses that and, and it and adjusts. The ba- the challenge is it is not an immediate adjustment. So there is a time mm. period where things are a little bit um, off. and yeah. And this is going to be true across the body. So not just the brain, but all your other clocks. So this is what jet lag is. Jet lag is basically a circadian syndrome where the clocks in your body are out of alignment. You know, it's, it's not lethal, it's uncomfortable. And, and we also know different people adjust differently. We do know things like use of physical activity and attention to timing of eating can help speed up or, or help make that transition go faster. Um, so that's one example where, where you just, so the clocks are, are always running but mm. the the, cl- the clocks are sensitive to information from the environment. And so the brain clock is sensitive to what time light comes in. So those night mm-hmm. readers that people have, you know, that's another thing people have to think about because that light coming from those readers is, is informing the clock in your brain at some level. Um, now, peripheral clocks, they're more sensitive to things like what time you eat and what time you exercise. And so there's a term called social jet lag. And, and so that's basically, you can sit at home, but you can mm-hmm. create a physiological jet lag just by getting normal exposure to light, but maybe eating at midnight or exercising at two in the morning. Or so, so you've got competing time information, one piece of information being light, telling your central clock, Here, this is where we are. And then you have these other time cues like feeding and exercise being offset from their normal times. And so that -hmm. that creates a misalignment. So the peripheral clocks will follow feeding and exercise. The central clock will stay with lighting. And and you can create jet lag misalignment without travel. So (laughs) therefore, social jet lag. And um, what is your
0: opinion on daylight savings?
1: Oh, we need to get rid of it. (laughs) It's,
0: <laughs> it's, yes, I, and that's what I hear a lot of people who sort of are in your field and research. Yeah. You know, um, the the sort of impact. So even if so, it's it's only a, a quote unquote only an hour, but does it have the sort of negative health impact, which which therefore would. Like just influences us in a bad way over time. Is that what the? Yeah, I there? mean, it's,
1: it's so. Yeah, I mean, the, the this is actually the 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 research organization that is sort of the home for circadian scientists is in the United States is called the Society for Research in Biological Rhythms. And we now have, you know, uh, statements about this and, and are working, trying to work with legislature to make sure everybody understands this. I mean, there, A, there's no reason to change clocks. You know, this, the reason we had that is no longer exists. So we don't need to change. So then the question becomes, do we stick with standard time or do we go to daylight savings? And the data on that are pretty clear that, that standard time is actually the proper and most healthy time way to track time. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so there's, there's quite a bit of epidemiological evidence and, 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 and again, so there, that the consensus is pretty strong that no, no need to change clocks and standard time is, is by far the, the most healthy for the way we live and our physiologies.
0: Okay. And
1: so what is the
0: negative impact then of daylight saving? So if, if standard time is most healthy, what are we pl- putting ourselves at risk of when we have this sort of change?
1: Yeah. So these, so, so I mean, I, I, I shouldn't know the actual answer to that, but I, you know, so the, the, I'm what I'm going to say is, um, so A, if people are really interested, the, the details of that are on the SRBR website. But the the, the concept here is that, You know, our our standard time is set with the idea that, you know, sort of high noon is w- when the sun is at its peak. And yeah. so then, and then, you know, and so that's what standard time is set on. And that seems to be, you know, classically where our, our, our health is best. When you offset that by an hour, again, it's not, you know, one day, obviously one year, we obviously live with it, yeah. but, but it, it's going to increase probabilities of things like metabolic disease, cardiovascular disease. So this, this is not like, you can't sit here and say that one hour it causes Yeah, yeah, diabetes. Yeah. No, I'm not going to saying that, but will it increase the, because of some of the problems with the circadian misalignment that occurs by sort of offsetting things by an hour, then, then you, you do increase probabilities of a variety of chronic diseases. yeah, and so, um, and then, then there are also issues with with people who have children in school. And yeah. so it's one thing when it's sort of sort of spring summer months, but but if we stuck to daylight savings time, then you know when we get into the winter months here, there are some parts of the United States that those that you know that it's going to be pitch black when buses are going to pick up kids for school. Well, and, you know it won't be light until 10 a.m. or something like that. Mm-hmm. And and so thinking about the health and activity levels of children. It it is it, it that has a negative influence on that as well. So there's some safety issues, as as well as just some fundamental biology health issues.
0: Yeah, and what is the legislate? What are the legislators' uh, opinions on the? Um, <laughs> On your recommendations, because it's interesting, right? Because in nutrition, I know, you know, we do a lot of research on what's um, potentially much better in terms of overall health for people, what they should be eating, but it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean that the policymakers are going to go, well, this is oh, what gotcha. we should be doing. So um, do you feel no. like there's going to be any shift in this anytime soon or any when they're going to take it seriously, your recommendations?
1: Well, you know, so it, it's sort of um, – so there are people in Congress here in the United States that are very sensitive to this, and and have been working with the organization to, and 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 in fact there were there were a couple of there was a bill that was brought up to make daylight saving time perfect permanent, mm-hmm. and that was rejected. So mm-hmm. so there's a so so the message so we're really happy the message has gotten out to enough people to just to to actually go no this isn't the right way yeah now there obviously there there are lobbying groups like um so i live in florida let's say theme parks like let's say disney world they would love to have more light hours to you know keep people spending money in their theme parks and golf courses and i'm not sure all who are in that but that's those are the groups that people talk about the most yeah and and Mm -hmm. they have influence and so depending on that influence um but again i think when people think about daylight savings time they only think about it during the summer months cuz historically that's how it's used yeah but as we transition away from changing our clocks we have to think about this as a year long uh lifestyle
0: yeah
1: and 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 the other part too is there are parts of the united states that actually did go to daylight savings time permanently huh. and they hated it and they changed back huh. so um and the and you know so the us is obviously this sort of um messy place uh where so there are maybe 11 states that now that do not change time for mm-hmm. you know daylight savings time or or that and all of those 11 are all on standard time and so i i think i i i'm cautiously hopeful that the momentum has us going in the right direction on this
0: yeah interesting karen can you describe what it is about that even the what seems like a slight shift in time or misalignment of the clocks, why does that negatively impact our metabolic
1: health? All right, let's start. So what what my lab has done is studied uh, circadian clocks in muscle. So what we have learned is that what the circadian clock is regulating, so part of what we know the clock in muscle is doing is that it is regulating substrate metabolism. And what I mean by that is that uh, before you wake up, in the morning, your muscle is now turning on a set of genes that are going to be helpful for oxidizing fuels. Mm -hmm. All right. So whether that's fats or carbohydrates, so so those are turning on before you get out of bed. So the concept here is your muscle is preparing for active phase. It knows it's going to be needing this. And then, you know, in converse, when you get to sort of the end of your active phase, what you see are genes that are important for fuel storage, things Mm -hmm. for glycogen storage. Um, potentially some fat storage that occurs that's healthy. Um, And so when I think about metabolism and muscle in the clock, what the clock's doing is is sort of saying, okay, we know when you're going to be active and when you're going to be resting. So we're aligning our metabolic uh, parameters, and this includes glucose uptake. Mm -hmm. This includes oxidative metabolism. To be aligned so we're ready to go when you're going to be active, so we can take in fuels, we can burn fuels, and then while we're resting, we're going to work really hard to store. All mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now, the liver is going to do a variation of that, only probably flipped, right? So the, the liver is one, one of the many jobs that the liver does is it provides glucose. I mean, so it it supports glucose levels while we're sleeping mm-hmm. or during that long fast, right? So you let's say you sleep from 11 to 6 or whatever, you know, during that time you're not eating, but you've got to maintain blood glucose. Where is that blood glucose going to come from is the liver, mm. So the liver has got this important role for maintaining blood glucose during rest. And then also it knows during the active phase, it may get called on to support with glucose production to help support all the active muscles and active brains and all these things. And so the clock in liver is is going to be regulating this part. Mm. Um, then you've got the brain clock that's, regu- that's contributing to some of the behavioral... Um, Aspects, and then things like, you know, as I talked about the the autonomic nervous system that will play a role in interacting with, let's say, the adrenal gland in terms of some hormone release and just different hormones, you know, cortisol and that kind of thing. So, for you to be healthy and mm-hmm. and and let's say take on a physical challenge and exercise is the easiest one that I think about the most. It, you know it's not just muscle, but you've got to have all the cast of supporting characters in there to to that can you know so your muscles can have the demand, but your body can manage all the other things so and the clocks are part of keeping these things working together right yeah. so so if you if you if you can go with that concept. Now what happens is, let's say, um, I, you know, I have, I don't know, light at night or some kind of thing that's happened. I just start disrupting some, but maybe not all of my clocks. You know, like I said, that so, uh, you know, you can have situations where the brain clock will shift, the other clocks may not be shifted, or you can shift the peripheral clocks and not the brain. And so now it's like, you know, well, this is going here, but this is not. So, so you have mis- mismatch, metabolic mismatch. Yeah. Okay. And and when you have the that that's that is that therein lies the chronic disease problem. I mean, yeah. again, this is not an overnight issue. You can handle this just fine, and especially if you're younger, you can handle it. But if you have this chronically, then it, it, it's it's you know all of a sudden your muscle maybe is not ready to get glucose. You know, it's, it's, it's maybe, you know, cause so in, insulin sensitivity in the muscle is something the clock contributes to regulation.
0: Yeah,
1: That's the easiest way to think about it in terms of diabetes is that, yeah. okay, the liver is putting out glucose because it, you know, it knows everything needs to start storing. But the muscle's like, nah, I don't feel like it now. I'm, and so, so now you've got, you know, the muscle stores, you know, eighty some percent of glucose. If it's not going to take the glucose up, your cir- circulating levels of glucose are going to be high. Yeah. And and so it's that kind of concept in in which you have this misalignment of clocks within the systemic physiology of the human. Yeah. And mm-hmm. will will just very simply lead to increases in blood glucose.
0: Yeah, yeah, and then of course. With that, all that sort of cascade of inflammation and that progression Absolutely. of disease, no, I get that. Um, Karen, you mentioned that you know younger people may deal a little bit better with potentially some of the challenges or misalignment. Are there changes in the action of the peripheral clocks or the ability of them as we age? is that does do we see that happen?
1: Yeah, so this this is actually a really, Interesting and uh, aspects, so we, we, we have jumped into this topic and um, and there there are other labs that are coming along with this too. there's there's no doubt when you look at sort of circadian behavior aspects and and, and also things like heart rate rhythms and blood pressure rhythms. As people age, the robustness of those rhythms of the physiological variables diminish. So mm. they, they, we talk about things being damped, and what what I mean with that is sort of if you think of the peak and trough of a rhythm, then as we age, those peaks and troughs get a little bit less separate. Yes, <laughs> and and so so um, there are so we, along with a number of groups, have been looking at uh, both peripheral clock function as well as central clock function. And and there's no doubt about it. The clock function is changing as we age. It's it's apparent in um again, our our work is in preclinical models. Yeah. So it's apparent in a, a middle aged animal. Um yeah. you don't have to wait till you're really old. You can already see pro- see problems or changes in the clock, and this is both centrally as well as peripherally. And and so it, it I you know, and then there were there were a couple of very recent papers in the last month again, in in animal models, but have been implicating the contribution of circadian rhythms to lifespan. So one of the things with aging that has been a really big deal is, is something called caloric restriction. So if you put animals on, you know, reduce how much they eat, you can get them to live longer. Well, there's a group in Texas just did this and then asked, well, what if we take the same calories and fed them to the animal during the rest phase or during their active phase or let them eat whenever they wanted to? What's the impact? Well, those that ate dur- only during their active phase had the greatest extension of lifespan. And and they had some experiments that implicated uh the 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 rhythm the clock function so this molecular timing mechanism uh being uh maintained better with yeah. age and so i i think this is going to be a really interesting time to see whether um you know in terms of human populations thinking about you know what time do are people eating what and if we have an activity program do we think about when we're implementing the activity and, you know, what are they getting exposed to the right wavelengths, you know, the, the appropriate wavelengths of light and trying to help the circadian systems within their body work together to keep them healthy longer?
0: Yeah. So interesting because, you know, from a nutrition perspective, I've read a lot of the literature and I, I've talked a lot about how... Uh, hormones and enzymes, their actions diminish over time as we age. So, for example, with protein intake, we need more Mm -hmm. of the leucine protein to stimulate the same response in the brain as a 50-year-old compared to, say, a 15-year-old, like Mm -hmm. we just need more of that sort of uh, stimulus. But some of that might be related to what's going on with the circadian clocks then in those tissues potentially.
1: Yeah yeah no so what, what what when we really dive into each of the tissues and look at what's what's changing with age and circadian rhythms things related to protein metabolism fat mm-hmm. metabolism mitochondria dna damage things that we just that are absolutely associated with aging those are those are processes that the clock does less well as yes. as it's getting older
0: yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Karen, is there any reason to think that there are sex differences in our circadian rhythms mm. and, and how things sort of change over time? Are we, you know, what do we know
1: in that area? Oh, uh, it's. I, I I I wish I could tell you more, but I but unfortunately, we don't know much. Um, part of it from the from the sort of more molecular end is that. Is, is actually it goes back to things like cost of experiments, right? So, yeah. um, be, be doing circadian experiments means you have to look at lots of time points. You can't just do one time point, right? So, so then you expand your analysis by twelve, let's say. Um, that said, uh, there is absolutely a big gap in the field, and and uh, we are about to embark on looking at sex differences again, preclinical, but sex differences in um, muscle and heart, uh, in terms of circadian function. So I, I, I think that will, it will absolutely. I mean, I think there are absolutely going to be differences. Um, I mean, if I had to guess, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to guess that the female clock is actually more robust than the male clock, just based on some of the things, you know, I don't have any firm data on that, but, but, um, you know, I, you know, and and you, and you can go to stories like, you know, or con- concepts. I mean, you know, obviously women that have children, um, those first ye- that first year at a minimum and maybe more are, are pretty well circadian disrupted. <laughs> yes. And so I think, I think there's some robustness in a, in a woman's circadian system that obviously can uh, adapt. I mean, it may not be comfortable, but you can, you can survive it. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, that's sort of anecdotal kind of storytelling, but, but I, I, in in some of our animal studies, I think, you know, when we see phenotypes with clock disruptions, they always tend to be a bit more dramatic in the males than in the females. And so, so from that perspective, I'm going to say that I think the female's clock function is actually better.
0: Yeah. And would that play at all into, and I know, obviously, this is all just um, speculation, but um, women's lifespans tend to be longer than men as well. So that must, in some sort of uh, inform maybe part of your opinion is it?
1: Yeah, no, I mean I I, I think yeah. you're absolutely right. It is wild. I'm not wild, but it is speculation. But but could you know I do think the 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 ability of the clock to function with age is a contributing factor to keeping our tissues healthy, keeping us healthy. Mm. I mean, obviously our lifestyles are going to affect that, but our lifestyles can affect our clocks. Yeah. And so, um, but but it may be that the female clock is a bit more resilient. And so given equal situations, then on average females are going to live a little bit longer than the males.
0: Yeah. And I also, when I was thinking about um our discussion today, and just trying to find some information on on some of the questions I had, I couldn't find anything related to menopause and the impact that that might have on the circadian clock. Which, of course, then that fits actually, because you've just told me that there's not a lot of research in that space
1: right now. Yeah. No, I mean, I, you know, the only thing that I can, you know, sort of laughingly share is that I think if you talk to most women post-menopause, sleep is, is, is a precious, come on, just, you can't sleep the way you used to. Yeah. And anytime you have sleep disruption, you're going to have circadian disruption. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to, again, speculate wildly that, that menopause is going to be a it's going to be a bump in the in the circadian aspect with women.
0: Yeah, yeah, but and and to your point, more disca- more circadian disruption, yet longer lifespan. So you're right, actually. Well, I mean, this is just you know uh, reinforcing your potential, you know, your hypothesis around it. Mm. Um. So as I understand it, Karen, a lot of your work has been looking at exercise and the circadian rhythm. And I've seen studies out of—I'm um, pretty sure your lab, or you're—you're um, certainly the author on the papers—around time of day and the best time to train with regards to mm-hmm. um, our circadian rhythm. So, um, what do we know about training and circadian rhythm?
1: Um, well, th- there's uh, yeah. So this is it's it's, it's so. We, we actually have a manuscript we're getting ready to submit, so it has not been published. So we we just did a study where we took um, and trained animals either like just when they get up. So so generally speaking, you know, so I was a runner, uh, a little bit of runner now, but I was you know, a lot more when I was younger. But I was always mourning. Yeah. It was like roll out of bed, go out, get out in the road and run. And then, if I, you know, if if for whatever reason I couldn't do that, and I tried to run in the afternoon, I could do it, but I always felt crappy, and I could never, you know, I tried to figure out my nutrition, my feeding, all that. Just, anyway, so it's always a morning runner. So, so we had a, a, a postdoc in the lab said, okay, let's let's look at this morning versus afternoon running because there, there's a little bit of literature in, in human studies as, and as well as in some animal studies, and so we took a, a cohort of mice and. And first off, if you just do a run to exhaustion test with mice, the same mice, if you say, okay, here you go on the treadmill, do what you can, you know, morning versus afternoon, the afternoon runners actually run significantly farther um, Mm. and, and was really striking. I mean, it's just like, I mean, at first I didn't believe it. So we did it over again. And so. So, so yes. So at least with mice, there is a very dramatic difference in run to, these are run to exhaustion tests, not VO2 max, but run to exhaustion tests. And so then what Stuart did is he said, okay, well, I'm going to take one group of mice and I'm going to train them in the morning, but I'm going to train them. And then I'm going to take another group of mice and train them in the afternoon, but I'm going to train them at the same relative intensity, which means that the absolute intensity of the morning runners is a bit lower. Than the afternoon runners, right? So if you're so he stayed with seventy percent of their max endurance, and so he tracked them for you know each. So then after week three, he went in and said, "Okay, are you guys adapting? Are you adapting the same, or you know?" And so what we saw after week three is that both group of groups of mice improved their endurance, but to the same magnitude. So the afternoon runners were still performing better than the morning runners. Okay. Mm. Then we tested them at six weeks and then all things went wacky. So, um, meaning by the time we got to six weeks, those morning runners were performing the same as the afternoon runners. Huh? So, so, it, so it's like, oh, well, that's great. But then again, as, as someone that's trained in exercise physiology, I'm sitting here going, but wait a minute, that means they started lower, they finished the same. So they had a bigger adaptation. All right yes. so they they, tr- they, had, they their performance increased about 1.8 fold mm-hmm. whereas the afternoon runners only increased about 1.4 fold so it was a significantly different uh amount uh that was that changed and 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 and, and then the other part I'm just like but they were even at lower intensity i mean they're n- not intensity they were lower absolute you know so the what they were the speed they were running at was actually slower then then those afternoon runners so so it's like this is like what is going so so we really believe that there is some kind of internal adaptation that's occurring that's promoting yeah. this significant improvement in performance time in these morning runners so what Stuart then did is he said okay well let's look at some of the obvious things are there differences in body weight with training in morning or afternoon no are there differences in body composition lean versus fat mass? No. So it's absolutely the same. Then we measured, you know, in response to these tests, we did measures of lactate and glucose and said, you know, do we see anything different in these metabolic markers? No. So they look virtually the same. And then we looked at glycogen storage. So one of the, you know, for improvement in endurance, glycogen storage, both in the liver and the muscle is really important. But well, training, so training does what training does. So there is a training Training induced increase in glycogen storage both in the liver and in the muscle. However, there was no difference depending on whether you were training in the morning or in the afternoon. And so, so then we went and we, so you know we're a circadian lab. So we said, okay, well, well, maybe there's some shifts in the clocks that may be aligning themselves differently. And absolutely, so the the, the mice that were running in the morning, the clocks in their muscles shifted mm-hmm. like. Earlier, about two hours, mm. maybe even more. Maybe it was three. And then the mice that were running later in the afternoon, their clock shifted backwards. Um, so again, it's the same exercise, but it's applied at different times, and the impact on the clock function in the muscle is very different. The morning runners, sh- you know, advance the clock. The the late runners delay the clock. The clock mm. in the brain doesn't change. Okay, so there's this is not a central clock change. This is a peripheral right. clock change. Yeah, and so what it looks like to us is that the muscles are really sensitive to when you're doing, in this case, run training. And I would speculate yeah. that weight training would do the same thing, but we don't know that. Um, and so what they do is they adjust their phase so they're they they know it's like okay, I know this animal is going to be running at this time. I need to, and so I'm going to my. Adaptation is to shift the phase of the clock to best support the running of that animal, and yeah. um, and we see some indications of clock changes in fat and in lung. So so I think there's a very very much a circadian shift in the circadian system. In, in these peripheral tissues that are coming with the morning runners versus the afternoon runners. And yeah. we, we hypothesize that these shifts are absolutely necessary for that, that bigger adaptation in the morning runners. To be tested. <laughs> yeah it's so
0: interesting because I'm I've always been a morning runner mm-hmm. and uh you sent your e- email to me and I just happened to because I knew we had our podcast interview I just wanted to double check before I went out on my run that um I hadn't had a a all oh, need to reschedule or whatever email which is why I was able to respond because normally mm-hmm. I wouldn't look at my email that early um but since I was 15 have gotten up so this is 30 years of getting up in the morning to run. And just as you describe, I can run in the afternoon and sometimes I have a stellar run in the afternoon. But usually mm-hmm. everything feels off. Everything mm-hmm. just feels horrible. So I, is what you're describing is that my peripheral clocks in my muscles have shifted with the habit of me running. So it's now supporting and actually it's just – enhancing my performance because it's in the morning because i'm used to Mm -hmm. it
1: yeah and i think you know the 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 thing is when you look at really elite athletes and and Mm. uh, you know i mean if so when they're performing at some kind of international level i think most of the time they train in whatever their event is going to be at about the time they're going to be performing yes yes they do And, and i i think they figured it out without knowing about clocks right yep. and so so i i mean i really think when you when you start looking at elite performers that you you know they they don't really care about the basic science they just want to do what what's going to work for their body and their performance yep. and i think sometimes we can learn more from them from what they do
0: yeah no, totally and often when i um talk to coaches and in things about training methods you often see that the science follows the method right Mm -hmm. so it's like Mm -hmm. oh this is this thing we know i wonder what the mechanism is and so you know if there's money (laughs) and there's interest it will be studied and then then it'll show up in the literature um what about maximal strength so what do we know about maximal strength and um time
1: of day training yeah. So that, 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 that is actually, that was, so I had a a graduate student in my lab put together a small review on the, on the time of day and strength. Um, this was a co this was a COVID project for him, but it was really quite interesting. Cause I, I mean, I had seen some literature on this, but I hadn't realized how many groups had actually looked at this. Um, and, and so ultimately, what Colin ended up doing though is just focusing on a very specific aspect of strength and that's uh, maximum isometric force in humans um, because the thing is when you start getting into different kinds of strength like dynamic mo- measures, so isokinetic or then uh, you know the reality is researchers have used you know different equipment, different different, approaches and so it becomes very difficult to compare across studies to see what sort of the common feature is so mm. so we just decided to focus with maximum isometric strength and i and it was really actually um impressive to me because people have been looking at this for about twenty years and and it it, it when it when it comes to humans and exercise it probably is the most consistent outcome I've ever seen in that Humans are stronger in the afternoon. And I don't care whether mm. you're talking grip strength or whether you're talking elbow flexors or whether you're talking yep. knee extensors, knee flexion, you know, or whether you're talking males or females, there doesn't seem to be a sex difference in this. It's, it's just, it is stronger in the afternoon. And so I, you know, and, and again, it's sort of the, 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 the trainees I've had in my lab that are really into strength training have always worked out in the afternoon. Again, sort of going back to the athletes will teach us how this works. So I, I think, you know, I, th- um, when it, and it doesn't mean you can't improve strength by training in the morning, but it just means mm. that if, if one has to, you know, and, and, and we don't really exactly know why you're stronger in the afternoon. Um, there are a few studies that have looked at, you know, motivation and neural drive and, and they're the limited data on that or are, are that it's, it's, that doesn't seem to explain the strength differences. So there could be some intrinsic muscle properties that are changing. Yeah, we just don't know yet.
0: Yeah, and so therefore, does it? Would it follow that you're going to get better gains if you train in the afternoon compared to the morning?
1: You could, you could. I mean, it, it, you know, so it's, um, I mean, there. the thing with the, the, the and, well, so if you're talking about gains and strength, um, so so when we get into the sort of resistance exercise world, there are those people that really don't care about strength. They just want their muscles to get bigger. And then there are those that are really interested in the strength gains and, and maybe muscles will change. Um, I, I think in terms of strength gains You know, one would propose that, yes, you could, you would do better with the afternoon because you can load the muscles more because you will be stronger. Um, Yes. You know, I think, uh, so that, so that's, I guess that's, that would be the, the, the hypothesis at this stage. I think there could be a big, again, kind of like the endurance exercise. I think there could be a bigger delta. You could see a greater change in strength. Um, if you started training in the morning, um, and then what, when one would expect is that, you know, the clocks would shift over and, and that you could, you could see the same thing with, with strength as you, we yeah. did with the running.
0: Yeah. So interesting. Cause I, again, I just think about how this relates to me because being a morning person, I've done everything in the morning, and so Mm -hmm. I've always gone into my strength – actually, I've changed that somewhat in that I I do do some strength training in the afternoon um, now, but I always – have often wondered whether I'm doing myself a disservice by only doing stuff in the morning compared
1: to, you know, I don't, I don't, well, I I don't see any evidence for that right now. I think where you would run into problem if you, if you randomize your training. So I I think, Mm. you know, when people ask me about this, it's sort of, again, you know, what I always want to say is that train when you want to train when yeah. it feels best for you train when you can fit it in um, yeah. and i think what i would say take from our our study that i talked about is that the clocks will adjust you know so your system mm. will adjust just do it and do it consistently um, yeah. what would be bad is randomly training
0: <laughs> like yeah training the chaos in the morning theory. one day
1: training in the night the other day you know it's just it, i think I, yeah. I think that 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 would limit adaptations i think there would be a problem with that
0: yeah. And that, you know, with everything that we've sort of been discussing around the consistency of the circadian rhythm and and how the clocks operate, it does seem that that, that consistency and routine is something that the body really appreciates and our physiology mm-hmm. sort of runs best on, right?
1: Mm-hmm. hmm I mean that the the underlying assumption with the clocks and human physiology or, or any physiology is that the clocks are working on you know to prepare you for the sort of the the stresses or the activities of the day and then manage the repair and storage at night okay yeah so so the clock is going to be turning things on before you're awake just and and it will start closing up the shop before you're asleep kind of thing
0: yeah yeah and Karen, does this change, um, and you may or may not know this, and that's um, because I didn't see any uh, real research on it, but does this change when we should take different supplements to be most Uh. helpful in alignment with circadian rhythm? Like, What do we know about that?
1: well i mean it's so it's limited the the biggest amount of research that's ongoing right now is is more in the pharmaceutical range and so so something like yes. so the, the best example for this is statins so in the united states it's like in the drinking water so people taking statins to help with cholesterol so your liver makes cholesterol at night so there's actually you're better off taking your statins before you go to bed you can go okay. on a lower dose and and minimize any secondary effects by timing when you take the statin. So that is one great example of what we call chronopharmacology or or thinking about the timing of, of your medicine. Now and this will be really important for any medicine that has sort of what we would call a short half-life so it does it's yeah. something that doesn't last in the body a long time There's also a significant body of literature in chemotherapies because obviously chemotherapies are really harsh and and mm. they can be really debilitating for people but they're finding that time of day in which the chemotherapy and it will depend on the type of chemotherapy so this is this is just very generic right now but yeah. th- th- that there are times of day that one can give chemotherapy again um, it can be a, a efficacious dose, but it can be a lower dose. So then all those neg- negative side effects can be at least attenuated somewhat so that the patient doesn't get as sick and and it potentially limit the ability of them withstanding chronic treatment for a cancer. And this, oh, this ranges from drug delivery as well as radiation therapies. So I think wow. we're starting to see some real recognition of this and, and hopefully, I mean, it's again, it doesn't cure the cancer or anything, but it just makes, makes the treatment a little bit better for the person involved. Yeah. Um, there, there are a lot of other studies ongoing about uh, different types of drugs as well. And so I think there's a real space and that, so, so supplements, absolutely. I mean, so, so the, the, the same concept here is that, you know, if you're taking a supplement for a particular function and, and the supplement is, you know, just, has you know you take it and it sort of has a a, a reasonable period in the bloodstream and then is gone then you you want to be taking it at a time when it's going to do the most good for whatever that that issue is um you know it's just like i and again i sort of go back to things you know so being a runner so thinking about marathons and and trying to you know people trying to keep maybe some glucose in as as they're running or if, you know, the different kinds of ways that you sort of feed while you're running versus that immediately after a race versus that when you're preparing. I mean, you have different strategies to either maintain blood glucose while you're running or replenish stores afterwards. and And some of that has a time of day Dependence, And so so one has to think, yeah. one can think about that more. I, you're absolutely right. Nobody's really entered into that space. So I think that'll be really interesting.
0: Yeah, so interesting. And I've also seen research looking at how the body tolerates carbohydrate in the evening time. And you mentioned that the liver has a peripheral clock when it metabolizes its nutrients. And, mm-hmm. do, you know the the uh, i might have only been one or two studies that i saw that that appeared that having carbohydrate later in the evening was going to be less helpful for our metabolic health Mm -hmm. because of that metabolism do we know much about um so one is that correct and and two i suppose what else do we know about the way that we you know the nutrients we eat and the peripheral clocks
1: yeah i i think um so so what we do what i feel confident about is we know that it would be nutrient independent but if we eat Mm. so if we eat if if i go and start eating at 10 o'clock at night that's telling the clocks in my peripheral tissues and that would be liver um heart um Mm. muscle and and it would would function to start shifting those clocks to that later time point So, so there's, so there's a couple of things in your question. So the one, the first off, so if we eat carbohydrates late at night, um, I could imagine it could be uh, bad. I don't, uh, to be honest with you, I don't know that, that literature particularly well, but I think, Mm. you know, so, so when I think about nighttime, I, again, I go back to the liver working to keep blood glucose up. And you know the mm. muscle storing. So if now you add on more, so the liver is already putting out glucose. Now you add on more from from eating um, that that may sort of push the system a little over the top. That's again, yeah. that's it's it's a speculation, but but that's a possibility. And and that kind of what I think is important is to consider the concept that chronically high levels are not good. So yeah. again, you know, what our clock's doing is oscillating. So it's like you, you want things on, but you don't want them on all the time. You want them off some mm. of the time too. And so anytime you start chronically increasing or chronically keeping things high, you know, it's kind of like keeping your engine running too high for too long. It's just, it, it ultimately, that that does not do good things for the engine. Now, in term, I mean, so the specific sort of, you know, when you eat fats and when you eat carbohydrates or when you eat proteins, I think that that kind of work is coming. It's not really there yet. I think the other interesting space is, is in type two diabetes. And, and because with diabetes, you do see effects on the clocks and the peripheral clocks. And so that does start interfering with, um, uh, let's say, so I I think it's Yulene Zareth's group, um, in the Karolinska has shown with diabetic subjects, for them, exercise in the morning is actually not good because they, the, the, mm. they have a, a glycemic response. So it goes up and then it stays up for quite a long time. And oh, so wow. for that patient population, it might be recommended that they exercise in the afternoon.
0: Oh, interesting. Because mm-hmm. I, I wanted to ask you about exercise and glucose tolerance, because I did see that you had a paper looking at how exercise can almost rescue the glucose intolerance that we might get from sleep deprivation. Is that,
1: mm-hmm. is right. that what your paper? Yeah. Can you just describe that a little bit? Actually the group in Australia that had worked with, um, so they did, did, uh, a, a, I, I, I would not have wanted to do this study, but they did a sleep disruption <laughs> study and yeah. then looked at it plus or minus sort of some exercise. I think they did high intensity interval training as the exercise intervention and then looked at some parameters uh both of circadian rhythms and then also a variety of metabolic uh aspects and and the exercise was beneficial and 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 so um especially in terms of some of the metabolic parameters so i think um yeah i mean i i i see exercise i i think a lot about it in terms of physical activity is that that's just part of our healthy physiology right that's how we've evolved yeah. is moving yeah yeah. and so so I, I, I it, it's not like oh I went to exercise class no this is a part of our, our <laughs> sort of how we stay healthy
0: yeah. um,
1: and and so it, yeah I mean it's 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 really important for that
0: yeah so from that study what I read was that if you do have sleep if you are sleep deprived and I know that that can impact negatively on your energy but if you can do do some exercise that's actually going to offset some of those negative health implications of sleep deprivation.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I it, it, it's um and that's in in fact that's what in terms of when people do um jet or travel, right? So mm. so one of the things is and especially those people that travel a lot, what if you talk to them the first thing they do when they get off a plane is they move And, you know, maybe it's going for a walk, maybe it's going to the gym, but, but it's, you know, it's moved Then you get light on whatever the cycle is where you're, where you are and, and you, you start, you know, eating at that, at the times of that place. And that will help in, in shifting all your clocks better, but exercise plays a big role in that too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Karen, has your research changed personally any of your habits or lifestyle behaviors?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I, you know, I am not, all, so I, I don't, so, so what do I do? I, I'm much more attentive to my sleep schedule and, and I, I, I mm-hmm. attend to, it. I mean, I'm consciously attentive to it. So, you know, it's sort of, um, I value sleep and I value sort of a, a schedule with that. Um, I, in terms of my eating, you know, um, unless I have sort of social things where I'm going to, you know, go out and it'll take me out later, you know, I try to finish um, my my eating, you know, around 6 p.m., so fairly early. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And I like, you know, since I am getting older, it's not because I like going out early, but it's just, so it's this idea that I want to try to, you know, I, I try to restrict my feeding to really kind of what would, I would consider the active part of my day. So I probably start, a, yeah. you know, eat about, I don't know, depending on how early I get up and what I do about nine or 10 and then finish up about six. And so I, and again, I'm not rigid, um, because, you know, I enjoy yeah. friends and I enjoy life and, you know, sometimes you can, you know, like yeah. I, I, when you start being really rigid about your feeding schedule, then, then that can make that more difficult. Um, you know, my exercise schedule. Yep. Yeah, my, I, well, like I said, exercise in the afternoon or evening has just never been an option for me. So I, I will, I will keep yeah, my morning, yeah. morning to mid morning exercise routine. Um, yeah, but, nice. but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm aware of it and I, th- I am aware of keeping my room dark at night and, and sort yeah. of minimizing light exposure. Um, yeah. Hey, you know, I mean, we all get older, and and I just want I'm I feel great, I'm healthy, and I just want to stay that way as long as I can. So I'm 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 embracing the circadian <laughs> concepts. Yeah, absolutely.
0: No, I love it. Um, actually, one question which is a complete tangent, but I always feel like if I'm having a glass of wine at lunch, which isn't very often, um, I feel like a wine before five is almost like worth two in terms of its impact <laughs> on how I feel. Is there anything circadian about that, like um, that we know, well, any sort of alcohol clock?
1: There, yeah, so, so alcohol affects the clock, absolutely. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, people are looking at both Acute alcohol exposure, as well as chronic alcohol exposure, and there's no doubt peripheral clocks are affected. Um, alcohol affects, you know, the central clock and sleep and, and and sleep aspects as well. But you know that that sort of I I would agree. My experience has been um, quite similar in in terms of you know if I if I happen to have an, a, a a midday drink, I might as well write off the rest of the day. It's just. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Maybe yours isn't that extreme, but I, but it's just sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, I could take a nap back here or something. It's just um, <laughs> yes. where whereas I feel a lot more engaged and social when I have a drink with dinner. Um, yeah, so, yeah. So so yeah, I, and so I think there there are time of day. I don't think we know exactly why.
0: Yeah, I often wondered whether there was a diurnal rhythm or something to the uh, the enzyme I think it's the is it the alcohol dehydrogenase yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. whether Mm -hmm. that had something to I always tell my students that I just Mm -hmm. go you know that's what it is um clearly I they will just look at me like I have an idea but I
1: I listened um (laughs) that's 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 the beauty of being the teacher you can just just with as long as you keep your face straight
0: (laughs) exactly
1: Mm -hmm. um so Karen finally
0: um what research I know we've actually talked a number of uh, things which are areas for further research but what is it that your lab is doing or what gets you excited in this space sort of moving forward
1: it all does. <laughs> um, so, so I, I, I think I'm just. We're having so much fun right now because it's, it's. We've gotten to the point where you know people recognize that that keeping clocks healthy is part of human health. And mm-hmm. so, so yeah. So I think the the work with aging and and where we see that going and the role of the clock and in particular in the tissue that I study the most in muscle, um, mm-hmm. we're really excited about. The role of the clock and and its contribution to aging and skeletal muscle and sort of the weakness, the sarcopenia, the metabolic disorders. Yes. Um, the other thing that I think is going to be really interesting is people are starting to look at, and we have as well, is, you know, so if I mess up the clock in the muscle, what happens to the clock in the liver or what happens to the clock in, in different organs? So, you know, these systems don't work by themselves and, and it's it's challenging, yeah. And but, but this is where, and this is an exciting aspect of where research is going is the communication between these other organ systems and the brain as well, obviously. Yeah. Um, and so there, so between the aging and then the exercise work sort of, I, I feel very strongly that, that the clock is a part that, that transcriptional clock network is a fundamental part of how our tissues respond to exercise and how they adapt to exercise. Yeah. And so, um, I'm really, I've got, uh, a few people in the lab that are really starting to dig into into that, to try to understand that better. Um, and again, uh, you know, I think, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a biologist, a, sci- a physiologist, I'm a scientist at heart. And when we can take this and apply this to humans, great. Right now, I'm just like, th- th- these questions are just exciting to me and fascinating. And yeah. they're just, um, and I think they do have implications for humans. And that's what I'm hoping some of my colleagues will help me with.
0: Yeah. <laughs> with no, that, That is fabulous and that's, I feel, similarly to um, your sentiments in that this is a really exciting area and it does make sense because everything does work together Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm really interested to see sort of how this field expands over the years. Mm -hmm. Karen, where is the best place for people to find out more information about the work that you're doing uh, in your lab or just in this area, sort of biological rhythms, circadian rhythms?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great question. I mean, so the, I mean, actually, you know, Google, you can Google me and and Google scholar. There's the the papers that way. That's uh, one of the best ways. I think, um, there are, I mean, I'm happy if, if people email me and just sort of reference, you know, this conversation, I'd be happy to point people out. I mean, right now there's not a sort of a centralized book. Or, or journal that I would send people to, but there are absolutely wonderful papers. And, um, the other thing I can, I can email to you is there's the website for the society. There's a couple of societies. One is the, um, Society for Research and Biological Rhythms, and then the other one is the, the European Group. So the European Group, and, and both of those places have some resources that would be very helpful if people are interested.
0: That is amazing. Thank you, Karen. And we will um, put the links to your research in the show notes and Mm -hmm. also to the biological or the societies that you were talking about. That would be great as well, Um, just so people who are interested, and there will be because such a fascinating sort of topic, and these are the things that my audience love Mm -hmm. hearing about, um, uh, so they can go sort of for future sort of research. Um, Professor Karen, thank you for your time for your mm-hmm. afternoon. I really appreciate it and and um,
1: really look forward to seeing what comes out next. Oh, it's been really fun. So thanks, Mickey. I've really enjoyed it. Good luck. Take care.
0: All right, team. Hopefully you've enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed chatting to Karen. And, you know, there is so interesting. There's so much we understand in this area, but there's just so much more that they're investigating and researching that we don't know. So, you know, I'm always so fascinated by the work that goes on into understanding the basis of our metabolism. So next week on the podcast, I speak to health advocate, Sarah Tanner, all about her transition from a vegan diet for over six years to incorporating animal products for her health. And we just discuss her overall journey and what this means for her as an influencer and her reasons behind it, and all of that stuff. So it's her lived experience, if you like. And I'm just so fascinated by changes that people make to their diet. And I think that you will really love this conversation that I have with Sarah too. But that's next week. Until then, you can catch me over on Facebook, at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, on Twitter and Instagram, at Mickey Willardin, or over on my website, mickeywillardin.com, where, as I said, you can grab yourself 50% off any of my programs. So team, until next week, and have a great week.